if you've been with us, uh, you'll understand that Second Peter is a letter written to probably the same audience that his first letter was written to, although some years later Peter wrote Second Peter probably a couple of years, a year or two before his death, before his martyrdom, and he was writing to encourage and warn the believers about the impending uh, invasion of false teachers. First Peter was written about external persecution. Second Peter is written about the internal danger of false teachers. All of chapter 2 of Second Peter addresses the issue of the false teachers and equating them with the false prophets of the Old Testament. But here in chapter 1, Peter is reminding us of our nature. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new nature, which is the work of God. And God is at work in us, in fact, in verses 3 and 4, if you'll look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, <clears throat> it says, It's seen that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We don't need to pray for divine power. Divine power is promised to us. Our issue is appropriating the divine power that is promised here. And then he goes on to say, for by these he is granted. He has granted something to us. And what is the these there in chapter 4? It goes back to the end of chapter 3, by his own glory and excellence or his own virtue. And it says, by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And then he goes on and he begins this series of eight qualities as we cooperate with God's power. Notice the power is given to us. And in cooperation with God, he says, now for this very reason, verse 5, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Last week we looked at the issue of faith. That fully, having fully been persuaded that what God says is true, what Jesus Christ declared is true, and that we receive it fully, fully persuaded, and that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and heaven bound. Uh, So we talked about faith last week, but uh, Peter goes on in this next series to say, and in your uh, excuse me, and in your faith, supply moral excellence. Supply is in the imperative voice, which means it is a command. It's this issue of supplying something to our faith. We are given faith. We know faith is a gift from God, but we are to supply moral excellence. Well, when I looked at this word, uh, I realized it's a very rare word in the New Testament. It only occurs four other places. It occurs in Philippians. It occurs, let me find the right verse here for you. It occurs in Philippians 4.8, it occurs in 1 Peter 2.9, in 2 Peter 1.3, as we've seen back up there, in his excellence or in his virtue, and here in 2 Peter 1.5. And it is a word that occurs so rarely that it is difficult to pin it down what it means. And so typically what we think of when we think of moral excellence or virtue, in fact, I've given you a list of the different translations in your bulletin in sort of the different versions of this passage. The King James says, add giving diligence, add to your faith virtue. New, King, or New English translation, make every effort to add to your faith excellence. In the English Standard Version, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Holman Christian Standard Bible, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. All of those are basically word-for-word translations. And then we get into more thought-for-thought translations like the New International Version, which says make every effort to add to your faith goodness. 
The New Living Translation supplements your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. The message, which is Eugene Peterson's translation and is kind of in the street language, is uh, so don't lose a minute building on what you've been given, complementing your basic faith with good character. So by looking at a number of different versions, how the translators translated the Greek word that is used there, we start getting an idea that it means virtue, excellence, moral goodness, uh, it means good character. We start getting an idea, but the question remains, is it our moral goodness, is it our virtue that we add to our faith? That is the difficulty because when we think of our own moral goodness, our own virtue, our being a good person is always on a sliding scale, isn't it? We are comparing ourselves with others, and typically we either compare ourselves with those who are really bad or those who are much better than us. And so what is this moral goodness? And that is the question today. I think of the story of... Uh, that I've read, and perhaps you've heard it in, in different uh, ways because it's one of those urban myths. Uh, but one of my favorite stories is about a big city mafia thug, a gangster who, was, who had a notorious brother also, both in organized crime, and his brother died. And he met with a local priest to discuss the plans for the funeral service. And this, uh, the brother who was the surviving brother said, I have one important requirement in this uh, funeral. And I, when you refer to my brother, you must tell everyone that he is a saint. And the poor priest, he didn't know quite what to do. He was very troubled. He said, well, your brother did some terrible things. He didn't quite have the best reputation. And uh, the living, the surviving brother demanded that he call his brother a saint in the funeral service and he leaned over the table and he said, you do that or else, Father. And uh, the priest was very anxious about this because he had been around long enough. He knew uh, these two brothers in organized crime, uh, when they threatened somebody, they carried out their threat. And so when the day of the funeral service arrived, the brother sat on the front row with all of his henchmen, very steely-eyed, and awaiting this much-anticipated eulogy of his uh, brother who had passed away. And hundreds of people filled the church Black limousines were lined up outside, and when the priest came up to the pulpit and began his comments, he said about this deceased mafia brother, he said, this man who lies before you today, he was a cheat, he was a murderer, he was a liar, he was a womanizer, and he was a brute. He stole, he sinned, and he strayed. In fact, he was one of the worst people I've ever met in my life, except for and compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Isn't that how we kind of measure ourselves against others? And it is a measurement that is on a slippery slope. We often think, and it's uh, the lie that is given to us, is that good people go to heaven. And yet there are a lot of good people who are not going to heaven because it's not about being a good person. If it were... Why were the religious people in Jesus' days some of his biggest enemies? Speaking of the Pharisees, if all people go to good people go to heaven, then why did Jesus tell that convicted thief and murderer on the cross next to him, this day you will be with me in paradise in Luke? If all good people go to heaven, why did Jesus associate so much with sinners? Matthew eleven nineteen. If all good people go to heaven, why did Jesus even need to come to this planet in the first place? 
And if all good people get to heaven, why did Jesus tell us there is only one who is truly good? Again, in Matthew 19. So Peter is challenging us to measure our own spiritual growth here. And we need to use this yardstick that Peter lays out in this first chapter, these eight qualities, to measure how am I doing? Am I growing spiritually? Am I growing closer to Jesus Christ? What is this moral excellence thing? How is it measured? What defines this category? Whether we call it goodness or virtue or moral excellence, to Greek philosophers, that word meant something about the fulfillment of something. When anything in nature fulfills its purpose, it is virtual. It it has virtue. It has moral excellence. The word is used in uh, extra-biblical literature to define uh, the power of God, the gods of the Greek world, to do heroic deeds. When they talk about the land, the crops that produce good, good crops, it is called excellence because it is fulfilling its purpose. When you think of a tool that works correctly, it is excellent. It is full of virtue because it is doing what a tool is supposed to do. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are first and foremost called to glorify God. We are first and foremost called to be worshipers. Worship isn't a passive spectator event. It is something that we as believers in Christ should be involved with on a daily basis. And on Sundays, we gather together in corporate worship or family worship to glorify because God has given us his nature within. It shows his excellence, fulfills his purpose. True virtue in the Christian life, perhaps, is not polishing our own human virtues, uh, but producing divine qualities in life. Uh, I was thinking about this, and how do you preach on a word that only occurs four times in scriptures? Well, the concept is very important, and really to understand it, we need to understand what true moral excellence looks like, what true goodness looks like, what true virtue looks like. And we have the privilege this morning of having a guest speaker who's going to lead us in that, a man who uh, greatly influenced my life uh, when I was a brand-new Christian. And uh, by the miracle of technology, we are going to have Dr. R.C. Sproul give us a presentation based out of Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, that Russ read for us. And so if you'd catch the lights, and we will listen. Not too long ago, a woman from Oakland, California, spoke to me, and she was angry. She was very distressed. And what she said was this. She said that she was angry with her pastor. And I said, well, why are you angry with your pastor? She said, I get the feeling that for some reason my minister... Every Sunday morning is doing everything that he can to conceal the true identity of God from the congregation. She said, I come to church and I long to have an opportunity to worship, to have my soul experience reverence for God and adoration. She said, but the God that I'm hearing about is a God has been defanged. He's been tamed. He has become innocuous. And she said, I'm sure that the reason the minister does this is because he doesn't want to frighten people 
by explaining the true character of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how accurate that woman's complaint was. But I know we all have a tendency to soft-pedal the biblical portrait of God. And there's a reason for that. The reason is this, that the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And that becomes clear if we look at the rest of the text of Isaiah. We've seen already Isaiah's record of his vision of the holiness of God. And what I'd like to look at now is what happened to Isaiah in response to what he saw. Before I do that, let me make this comment, that in the early chapters of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by John Calvin, Calvin makes a statement that goes something like this, hence that dread and terror by which holy men of old trembled before God, comma, as Scripture uniformly relates. What Calvin was saying is this, that there is a pattern to human responses to the presence of God in the Scripture. And it seems that the more righteous the person is described, the more he trembles when he enters the immediate presence of God. There is nothing cavalier or casual about the response of Habakkuk when he meets the holy God. Do you remember Habakkuk's complaint where he saw all of the degradation and injustices that were sweeping across the landscape in his homeland? And he was so offended by this that he went up into his watchtower and he complained against God and he said, God, you are so holy that you can't even behold iniquity. How can you stand by and let all of these things come to pass? And he said, I'm going to sit up here and I'm going to wait until God answers my question. And you remember what happened? That when God appeared to Habakkuk, he said, My lips quivered, my belly trembled, and rottenness entered into my bone. What happened to Job? When he waited for the voice of God, and when God showed himself to Job, Job said, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I have spoken once. I'll speak no more. I will take my hand and put it upon my mouth. As Calvin said, the uniform report of sacred scripture is that every human being, whoever is exposed to the holiness of God, trembles in his presence. That was no less true of Isaiah. Now think of Isaiah. I, I haven't made a, a, a moral survey of 8th century Israel, but I can't imagine that there was any human being running around in the Jewish nation 
at that time who, humanly speaking, was more righteous than Isaiah. Isaiah was about as righteous as human beings could, could be found in those days. And he has this glimpse of the holiness of God. And the first thing he does when he sees the holiness of God is that he cries out in terror. And the old King James Version records his words as saying this, Woe is me, for I am undone. Now I know that more recent translations have tried to change the, the language there of Isaiah because nobody talks like that anymore. Nobody says, woe is me. The word's kind of uh, antiquated. The, the expression is uh, an archaism. Uh, it's, it's like somebody saying, forsooth, or alas, and alack. Nobody talks that way unless you have some Jewish friends. Sometimes when things go wrong, they'll say, which is the Yiddish uh, rendition of the same verbiage here, woe is me. But for the most part, we don't hear people talk like that in our culture. And so translators, in trying to communicate the Word of God in modern verbiage, will do away with some of this archaic language. But when we do that, sadly, we're in danger of missing another one of those semi-hidden gems of biblical literature. There is a reason why Isaiah used the word woe. In the Old Testament, a prophet was a human being who was anointed by God to be a spokesman for God. The simple definition that distinguished the prophet from the priest in Israel was this, that it was the task of the priest to speak to God in behalf of the people. It was the task of the prophet to speak to the people in behalf of God. So that when the prophet uttered his message, he wouldn't preface his statement by saying, in my humble opinion, or it is my judgment that, or I think that perhaps this may be the case. That's not how they addressed the people. You know what they did. When they gave their message, they prefaced their words by saying what? Thus saith the Lord. Because they understood that they were vessels of divine announcements. Now again, the literary form that was common to the prophet of Israel was the form that we call the oracle. You've heard, I'm sure, of a Greek oracle, the oracle of Delphi, who would give these announcements about the future. Well, among the Jews, the oracular literary device, the oracle, was of two types. There were oracles of weal and oracles of woe. Now that means simply this, that there were announcements that came from God that were good news, and there are announcements that came from God 
that were bad news. An oracle of weal or an oracle of prosperity used a word that was important to this oracle among the Jews to introduce the good news, and it was the word blessed. Jesus obviously uses the form of the oracle self-consciously as a prophet when he gives the Sermon on the Mount. The people of his day would have recognized the significance of his beginning, giving this list of sayings that he would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, and so on. Blessed are the peacemakers. He was pronouncing the oracle of God's will upon the people. The divine blessing, the divine benediction to those who did these certain things. But the flip side of the oracle of weal was the oracle of woe, which was a grim and terrifying announcement of God's judgment. Hear the prophet Amos when he announces the judgment of God upon the nations and upon the cities. For three transgressions and for Damascus, woe unto you. Jesus, when he gave his scathing denunciation of the Pharisees, prefaced his words of judgment using the Old Testament prophetic oracle by saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cross land and sea to make one convert, and once you have made him, you make him twice the child of hell than you are yourself. I mentioned in our first session how rare it is in all of Scripture for anything to be raised to the repetitive level of the superlative, and I said the only attribute of God that's ever repeated to the third degree is the attribute of holiness, holy, holy, holy. But it's not the only thing that is repeated to the third degree. Jeremiah, the prophet, when he went and gave the judgment of God before the temple of, of the Jews, he said to them, you people come here and you say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah was saying, in effect, your hypocrisy is to the nth degree. You trust in lying words, words that cannot profit. And the darkest hour of this planet is foretold to us in the apocalypse of the New Testament, where we are told that in that last hour, the bowls of divine wrath will be poured out upon this planet. And we hear of this heavenly figure flying across the darkened sky, announcing the final judgment of God with the repetition of one word, singing what? Woe, woe, woe! You don't want to be around when that bird starts to sing. you see what happens here in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? That one who is called of God and set apart, whose words, the very words of God are placed in his mouth, 
the first oracle that he pronounces is an oracle of doom upon himself. Woe is me. As soon as Isaiah sees the unveiled holiness of God, for the first time in Isaiah's life, he understands who God is. And the very second that Isaiah understood who God was, for the first time in his life, he understood who Isaiah was. And what came out of his mouth was something akin to a primordial scream where he curses himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. I know the more modern translations use, for I am ruined. But I like this old one, undone, for this reason. If we look at what's happening here through the glasses of modern psychoanalysis, we could describe this experience that Isaiah relates as an experience of psychological disintegration. That is, disintegration. We use words to describe a person who is healthy. We say that that person is whole. He has everything together. And when we see somebody who is losing it, we say what? He's falling apart. Isn't it interesting that an, a synonym that we use for virtue in our language is the word integrity. That is, that we have everything about our lives meshed together in a coherent and a consistent way. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is the man who possesses the most integrity of the Jewish people who comes and gets one glimpse of the holiness of God and he immediately suffers disintegration. He comes apart. That's what happens to people who catch a glimpse of the character of God. Because do you see that we spend our entire lives veiling ourselves from the true character of God? Because our natural bent, our natural inclination, beloved, is to hide ourselves from Him. Because we know instinctively that as soon as the holy appears, it exposes and reveals anything and anyone who is not holy by virtue of that standard. We have a justification for every sin that we commit. We are masters of self-deceit. Calvin makes this statement. He said, as long as our gaze is fixed on the ground, we're safe. We flatter ourselves. We address ourselves as demigods, slightly lower than eternal deity. 
We do what the Apostle Paul warned us not to do when he said, those who judge themselves by themselves and judge themselves among themselves are not wise. Let me tell you something about human nature. We could go out into the streets of America and ask this question to everyone on the street, and I can't believe how many people would answer it the same way. If I said to people, are you perfect? I'd be willing to bet that 99 out of the 100 people that we asked that question, no matter what their background is, would say, no, I'm not perfect. The one axiom that all Americans will vote for is that nobody's perfect. Errare humanum est. To err is human. Nobody's perfect. But that doesn't seem to bother us at all. There's not one person in a thousand who will deny that they're not perfect. That's a double negative. Let me put it the other way. There's not one person in a thousand who will claim to be perfect. And beloved, there's not one person in a thousand who understands the seriousness of not being perfect. Because the standard by which we will be judged ultimately is not a curve. But it will be the standard of God's perfection. I hear this. Everybody's entitled to one mistake. Says who? Where did God ever say you can all have one mistake? One free sin. One free act of treason against my authority. One free insult to my integrity. He never said that, did he? But even if he did, how long ago did you use yours up? Everybody's entitled to one mistake. I hope we get more than one. One mistake a second is more like it. But you see, we're comfortable with our imperfection. We judge ourselves by each other. No matter how ashamed I may be of the weaknesses in my life, and sometimes when I look inside myself, I make myself sick. Don't you feel like that? Do you ever disgust yourself? How could I do that? I can't believe that I'm that selfish, or I can't believe that I'm that covetous or lustful or whatever it is. But we are quick to excuse ourselves because we look around and we can always find somebody who's more depraved than we are, at least on the surface. So we can be like the, the, the public or the, or the Pharisee that Jesus talked about that went up to the temple to pray and said, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like that miserable guy over there. And so we find a way to excuse ourselves and to flatter ourselves until we see the standard. And when that happens, we are undone as Isaiah was undone. When he saw pure holiness, he understood what it was that he wasn't. He couldn't stand it, and he's on his face, and he's screaming out in pain, and he's saying, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I wonder why he said what he said. When he cries out now in his terror, he said, I'm undone because I have a dirty mouth. 
wonder why he it went to his mouth if you read the teaching of Jesus one of the things that comes through his teaching again and again is a lesson that almost no one in the 20th century believes anymore Jesus if Jesus of Nazareth taught anything he taught repeatedly that someday every human being would be called before the tribunal of God. That every one of us will have to give an account before the holy creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus says that on that day, every idle word that we have ever spoken will be brought into the judgment. That everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, Every promise we've ever made and broken. Every blasphemous statement that's come from our mouth. Every slanderous word that we've made towards our neighbor will be brought up on the table. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out. God has given us our mouths as vehicles to praise him. To express his truth. And instead we've used our mouths to lie, to hurt other people, to blaspheme God. We have dirty mouths. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, his hand went instinctively to his mouth. As he cried out this curse upon himself. Now ladies and gentlemen... What did God do? Did God look down from the throne and see his servant writhing in the dust in all of this remorse and repentance like some medieval monk in a monastery involved in self-flagellation and say, Come, 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 come now, Isaiah. You're taking yourself far too seriously. Don't have such a morbid preoccupation with your own guilt. You're going to give a lifetime of study for the likes of Sigmund Freud carrying on like this. Don't be so neurotic. You've got a guilt hang-up. I mean, you must have been reading Jonathan Edwards or anticipating Queen Victoria. Not what he did. Nor did God look at his servant writhing in the dirt and say to him, Suffer, you miserable creep. You deserve to be undone and ruined. Go ahead. Let the curse fall upon yourself. I've had it with the likes of you, Isaiah. I'll catch you later. That's not what he did. Tell you something else he didn't do, ladies and gentlemen. God didn't say a word to Isaiah about cheap grace. God didn't say, look, Isaiah, all I want you to do is sign your name on a membership card or raise your hand and you can come into my kingdom. No. God saw his servant in pain and he nodded to one of the seraphim and the seraph went over to the altar where the white hot coals were burning there in the holy place and the coals were so hot that even the angel the angel's flesh couldn't come in contact with them he had to use tongs 
And with these tongs, he took one of these white-hot coals, and he flew over to Isaiah. And we read in the text that he placed this hot coal on his lips. You know how sensitive the human lips are? It's with our lips that we express one of the most intimate forms of tactile communication, the kiss. The nerve endings of the lips are hypersensitive. And yet this man has the experience of having a hot coal placed right on his lips. You know that what happened is the instant that coal touched his lips, there was a huge blister formed on him. You could hear his, his flesh sizzling. Why? Because God was being cruel and unusual in his punishment of Isaiah? No. The coal was applied to cauterize his lips, to purify him, to heal them. To prepare them for the message that he was to give. Listen to what it says. One of the seraph flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I'm a Protestant by conviction, but one of the things that I miss from the Roman Catholic tradition is the confessional. Yes, the confessional was at the heart of the Protestant controversy, but only one element of it, and we have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. How I long to be able to go someplace to someone that I can see and hear and experience their, their real presence and say, Father, I have sinned. This is what I have done. And list my transgressions. Get them off my chest. And then be able to get on my knees and hear somebody say to me, in the name of Jesus Christ, Te absolvo. I absolve you. Your sins are forgiven. How would you like to hear Christ come in this room right now and walk to where you are privately and say to you, I know about every one of your sins, but right now, I want to tell you that every sin that you've ever committed in your life is forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. All of it. You never again have to worry about the sins that you have committed against God. I am forgiving you and cleansing you this moment and forever. What would you give to hear Jesus say that to you? That's what God said to Isaiah. It's gone, Isaiah. All of your guilt. You don't have to speak the curse any longer. 
I'm taking it away. Your sins are forgiven. They are atoned for. And now as Isaiah is trying to deal with that, God speaks once more and he said, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And the first thing that Isaiah says after cursing himself is what? Here am I. Send me. Notice he didn't say, here I am. That would be telling God his geographical location. No, he said, God, here am I. He could hardly say it through these lips. Ladies and gentlemen, the price of repentance is very, very painful. True repentance is honest before God. And to come into the presence of a holy God is a painful thing. But when we come humbly, as Isaiah did, when we come on our face, God is ready to forgive, to cleanse, and to send. The only justification for any missionary's mission, for any preacher's preaching, is that that person has experienced the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Father, we... I think what you've just heard best describes what moral excellence is. Back in 2 Peter, notice, if you take your copy of God's Word, there in verse 5, Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, the cooperation with God, and the faith that is gifted to us, but yet it says, supply moral excellence. Notice it does not say, say, supply your moral excellence, my moral excellence. It simply says, supply virtue, goodness, moral excellence. This is where it comes from. Notice back up in verse 3 where it says, he's called us by his own glory and excellence. He is the one who has given us the moral excellence to supply to our faith. And part of understanding that is the encounter with the holiness of God through his word. As Isaiah faced God face to face, we face God face to face in his word. And until we understand the absolute holiness and God's absolute qualities, we'll never, never understand our own sin. And we will not understand what it means to supply moral excellence to our faith. You may have faith, but yet are you claiming and appropriating the moral excellence of God? And as R.C. Sproul pointed out, as Isaiah did, we repent because truly woe is us. We are a people of unclean lips. And we need his cleansing power. And thankfully, Jesus Christ has provided that. And he has provided us with the power, as Peter says before, to live lives of godliness daily. It's not something we work up in our flesh, in our own volition, but it is the recognition that God has given it to us. 
as was sung earlier, he lives in us. His power lives in us, and we will sing that again. And think of that in verse 3 when we sing this song again. His divine power is granted to us everything. What a great God we serve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.